Hello, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life Magazine. Welcome to the Cottage Life Podcast. In this episode, don't do it for the gram. We chat with a wildlife expert about responsible wildlife photography practices. Plus, we reveal an unexpected suggestion to replace the beaver as Canada's national animal. And we continue our celebration of Cottage Life's 35th anniversary with a heartfelt reflection from a reader. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. We don't get many summer weekends in Canada, so we need to embrace every single one of them. That means my family and I get outside no matter what. Whether the sky is grey or the wind off the lake is chilly, or even when the mosquitoes are biting. But before we head out, we need a reliable bug repellent, and that's where Oft Gentle Insect Repellent comes in. It's DEET-free and repels mosquitoes for up to 5 hours, so you can use it with confidence on the whole family, 6 months and older. Plus, the formula feels good on the skin, and it's not oily, sticky, or greasy. Try it, and you'll have one more great reason to embrace the outdoors every summer weekend. We now live in a world where everyone has a camera in their pocket. Given that, the risk of getting too close and posing a danger to wildlife while taking their photo has become much more profound. Erin Ryan is a biologist and the wild animal welfare specialist at the British Columbia Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And for the past seven years, she's managed their Wildlife in Focus photo contest. She's seen firsthand the opportunity and challenges photography presents for wildlife, and she's here to impart some important do's and don'ts the next time you want to whip out your phone. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thank you for having me. I think the first thing I wanted to ask you is it's a fairly broad question, actually, but what do you think it is that makes humans so drawn to animals, particularly wild animals? I think there's something very human in that attraction to animals and that love and appreciation for the nature all around us. And I think we see a lot of ourselves reflected in wild animals in their curiosity, their intelligence, sometimes their kindness. And they're caring. Yeah, I think there's something else too about taking photos um, of wildlife is that you can actually, depending on the camera you're using, see them better when you're looking through the camera. Yeah. I think people are really into. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, people are drawn to animals and they're drawn to taking photos of them. And I think that most people are genuinely um, well-intentioned when they go to take photos of wildlife, but they end up actually doing some harm inadvertently. So what, what do you say to those people? Like, what are some of the risks there? I mean, there's no doubt that everybody who's out there taking photos of wild animals is there because they love wild animals and they never want to hurt them. But I think it's important to remember that they are exactly that. They are wild animals mm -hmm. and they still retain all of their wild instincts. So if you're to take a photo of them, what are the things that you should be thinking about? I think number one is just respecting their wildness and keeping your distance. I don't think people realize how dangerous these interactions can be. Right. It was just in the beginning of June that a woman was tossed into the air by a bison in Yellowstone Park because she got within 10 feet of them. And fortunately, she survived that encounter, but she's very, very lucky to have done so. Mm. And was she trying to take its photo? She was trying to take a photo. So right. she was approaching the bison as they were walking 
across the path. And it was when she hit that distance of about 10 feet. And of course, bison are much, much faster than people. Mm -hmm. um, and there was no, no getting out of the way once they were that close. Yeah, I mean, bison certainly don't look it. And actually, it's an interesting point, because they don't look fast. I feel the same way about moose. I think that's the thing that happens in Canada more often is that people will take um, try to get close to moose to take a selfie with it. And so doing, they'll turn their back to it. So explain why that might be a problem. Yeah, definitely never turn your back to a wild animal because if they're already feeling threatened and they've, you've now turned your back to them, um, they may take that opportunity to try and ward the danger off. So right. it's important to recognize the signs of stress and know in advance how far an appropriate distance should be. And of course, the further, the better. Can you tell me some more um, examples of like signs of stress in any kind of wild animal? So it varies species to species. But for example, in elk, you might see them, you know, sort of pat their hooves or try to, they'll be moving a little bit if you see them side to side. In some mammals, it can just be as simple as freezing. So if they see you and then they suddenly aren't moving at all, it may be that they're trying to rely on their camouflage and stay hidden from you. Right. And if you sort of get too close to them in that scenario, they will eventually sort of come after you? They could, or you could just be causing unnecessary stress. So even though they're frozen in place and they're not running away, you might not inherently recognize that as stress, but it's very difficult for them. And if it's in the middle of baby season or migration season, uh, this can cause them to burn extra calories and use extra resources. Uh, we've seen examples where, you know, mammals with babies, if they have babies in the den, if somebody gets too close and photographs them, they may freeze as a defense strategy. But after you leave, they might actually relocate all those babies because they perceive that spot to be unsafe. So we've now caused an entire family to relocate. We've essentially evicted them at the sake of a photograph. Right. I think that's a great example of uh, someone doing something inadvertently and not really not understanding. Um, it's interesting what you said just then about how, you know, the animal might not attack you, but there's, there's repercussions for the animal that you aren't aware of. Um, so you mentioned that it might be uh, migration season and um, they may be burning calories. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah. So migration is a very energy expensive endeavor. It takes them a lot of calories. They use a lot of muscle. They're flying for long, long periods of day and traveling vast distances. So everyone, of course, is so excited when some of their local migratory birds land back at home and they can take photos again. But it's really important to remember your distance because for them, if that's the very end of their journey and they've exhausted a lot of their resources, if you startle them and cause them to take flight, that could literally be a life or death situation for them to use the last of those resources. Okay, so there, that's another great tip. Like if you're seeing an animal that you're not used to seeing, it could be that it's migrating and you have to you know, pay extra attention to it, pay extra care to the way that you get close to it. Is that, is that a good tip? Yeah, I think so. Just making sure that you're always keeping your distance. Right. And how close is too close? You, you mentioned 10 feet. Is that true for all animals or just, you know, the big ones? Is, are there, is there sort of a rule um, that applies? It's going to vary species by species for sure. Um, obviously, animals that are larger, you're going to want to stay much, much further back. Animals that are smaller, there might be uh, a slightly shorter distance, but you should certainly aim to never be close 
closer than they could run to you if you try to imagine it. Mm -hmm. So you are very involved in the photo contest that the BCSPCA does, the Wildlife in Focus contest. So I'm curious to know, because Cottage Life has their own photo contest and we have a wildlife category. And, you know, we're always really, when we see the entries, it's hard to know how close the, the photographer actually was to the creature that they're, they're photographing. Are there any sort of guidelines that you offer through that contest or is there any um, sort of hints for you to understand, um, you know, how the circumstances of the photo came to be? A little bit. So we do require that photographers submit the physical location and the date taken. Mm -hmm. So we know, for example, that if somebody got up really close to a particular species of wild animal and they give a city or a general area, I might be able to tell, hey, that was taken at a captive facility, actually. Right. For example, if I see a really close-up photo of a grizzly bear that was taken in North Vancouver, I might assume that this was taken at Grouse Mountain, where they have a pair of grizzly bears in, uh, in captivity. So often that location can be a clue. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm going to switch gears here. I wanted to talk a little bit about social media. We found when we, we did a story on, on responsible wildlife photography in a recent issue of Cottage Life, and we found a stat that I was just kind of floored by in some ways. In 2017, animal rights organization World Animal Protection pointed out that there had been a 292% increase in users posting wildlife on Instagram specifically in the previous three years. Almost 300%. Like, that's pretty incredible. It's hard to think that that, that big an increase wouldn't have an impact on wild animals. So can you tell me a little bit about what role you think that social media platforms like Instagram play in contributing to these kinds of issues and what they're doing to sort of help with them? For sure. I mean, we've definitely seen social media have a huge impact, whereas in the past, wildlife photography was sort of reserved to professionals. Now everyone can participate and right. with the growth of smartphones and social media, people are compelled to share those photos, which means they're compelled to take those photos. So I'm not surprised to see a huge growth. And especially in these last couple of years with the pandemic, people are spending more and more time outdoors Yeah, and seeing maybe some of these local animals for the first time. Yeah, I, no I noted that birding became incredibly uh, popular during the pandemic. Um I had, I had learned in the, again, in researching this article that there are certain hashtags where social media, I haven't seen it myself, but Instagram will actually give you a, a warning. Do you, do you know about that? I have seen that. So for example, the one I know is if you hashtag wildlife selfie, it gives you a warning that says, you know, you're searching for a hashtag that may be, may be promoting harmful or inappropriate behavior. Right. And I think that's amazing Yes, that they're promoting that. But I would also say for all the, the wildlife lovers out there, if those are the changes you want to see on the platform, they have to hear it from you. So definitely take the time to reach out and say, this is harmful and this needs to stop. Yeah. And that's how you get those flags put in place. Yeah. Yeah. No, stop doing it for the gram. <laughs> I think is what, what we would say. Don't uh, do it for the what, gram. Yeah. Don't do it. For, don't do it for the gram in this case. Yeah. 
Well, it's just a really interesting topic. And I think that most people are really, as I said, off the top, unaware of the problems that they could be causing. And, and I think what you said earlier about how you, it's not so much about your personal safety as it is about the safety for the animal. And, and you'll never know that just by being there, what kind of damage you might be harming them. So stay at least 10 feet back, use a long zoom lens if you have it, certainly stay away from babies. Are there any tips I'm missing? Oh, the last one is we didn't touch on the ecosystem and the environment. Right. So we do see cases too where people will be sort of stomping on sensitive plants or ecosystems after a particular photo. And that could be of a wild animal, but it could also be of rare plants. Right, right. Where I grew up in Kamloops, British Columbia, there's some really delicate uh, silt cliffs that a lot of the landscape has. And so it takes a long time for plants to root in these delicate silt cliffs. And once they actually do, they're still fairly fragile. So if you climb up the hill, you might not realize it, but you've just unrooted plants that took a very long time to get there. And you've basically, it's like, it's like chopping down a tree that takes a hundred years to grow back to that, to that height. Yeah. They might just be small little plants, but they don't realize how much work goes into that plant growing and rooting. Yes. So interesting. It's true. I wouldn't have thought about that because it's not just the animals that are at risk. It's like where you're going to get closer to those animals in in their natural habitat. Fascinating. Well, Mm -hmm. this is great stuff. And I hope that, you know, people, I hope there's a bunch of people in their cars right now saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that last weekend and I'll never do that again. And uh, I think that's good work if, if, if we've accomplished that. So thank you so much again, Aaron, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your knowledge on this really fascinating and current uh, subject. Likewise, I hope people are listening and know that we're not judging you. We just hope that you'll spread the word. Yes, I love that. No judgment. Just don't do it again. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Aaron, so much. Thank you. There was something I wanted to pass on that Aaron shared with me just after we finished recording. She mentioned how she'd often see kids chasing around Canada geese, which I admit is something my own kids used to do. And while she understands the allure of this for little ones, she also warns against it. And that's because the geese might be molting. And while that's happening, they can't fly and they can become aggressive. So they might even bite you. This is another example of why it's always a good idea to give wildlife 10 feet of space. Last summer, we asked some of our frequent contributors to suggest a replacement for the beaver as Canada's national animal for our story, The Great Canadian Creature Feature. We had a few surprising ideas, including this one from writer Jenny Kingsley. Here she is making the case for the humble and beloved chickadee. Chickadees are so abundant at backyard feeders and neighborhood parks across Canada It's easy to forget that they're wild animals that live in almost every treed habitat in our country. Perhaps you've even seen one and thought, it's just a chickadee. It's a common bird, but that familiar sight is also an extraordinary one. Not only are chickadees an animal we can get close to, they're so emblematic of what it takes to thrive here that they deserve a new title, Canada's National Animal. Let's start up close because we can bond with chickadees. They make eye contact, and if you can whistle, you can have a conversation with one. They will respond. As children, we learn to sing with them. Chickadee-dee-dee, 
and if we're patient, they will come to our hands. Chickadees are the central characters in my earliest wildlife memories. As a kid, I spent winter afternoons in our local forest holding out handfuls of sunflower seeds and willing them to come. I would stand until my fingers froze and my outstretched arm shook from the effort. Chickadees taught me the patience and stillness I would need when I became a guide and naturalist later in life, and I've never tired of them. As an adult, I returned to the same forest, still waiting to feel the pinpricks of their tiny nails against my cold fingers. By feeding chickadees healthy seeds, we can deepen our connection with them and help them to survive the winter and improve their reproductive success. Yet they don't become dependent on us. They never forget how to forage for themselves. Chickadees don't migrate. They can handle winter, an essential trait for a national animal. And though they only weigh as much as two quarters, they can induce a controlled state of hypothermia to survive the cold nights. By morning, they'll be flitting around again, drinking fresh water from melting icicles. While these birds are charismatic and approachable, they're also tough enough to meet the demands of Canada's huge and wide-ranging habitats. They have some nifty adaptations to help with this. Their legs are so strong, they can feed hanging upside down. They have extraordinary spatial memory for the food that they cache, and they use at least 16 different vocalizations, including the intense high Z, which warns of predators so effectively that other species of birds also listen and react. Like many songbirds, chickadees are short-lived. They rarely see their fourth birthday and experience about 50% mortality in their first year. One of their main strategies to survive the hardships of their short lives is the very thing that makes them so remarkable, curiosity. You only have to watch a chickadee for half an hour to see this for yourself. They never stop learning, and that, more than any other trait, is what makes them my top choice for Canada. They are always exploring. This makes them more than an animal we can learn about. It makes them a companion we can learn from. Zoom out from the cute little bird at your feeder and look at a map of Canada. You'll find chickadees everywhere, in every province and territory. In Haida Gwaii, the Arctic coast, the fjords of Labrador, southwestern Nunavut, and downtown Toronto. We have five species. Black-capped, mountain, gray-headed, boreal, and chestnut-backed. Between them, they've evolved to live in every major forest type in our country. They're all cavity nesters and partially dependent on tree seeds for winter forage, but they push those habitat requirements to the limit. Some live at high elevations, others on the edges of the tundra. So we might get to know chickadees for how common they are, our companion in nature, our national bird in the hand. But our moments with them might also be the closest encounters we will ever have with a wild animal. When you look one in the eye, you will see tenacity, intelligence, and poise, and an animal that knows our country better than we do. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Some cottage memories I want to keep forever. 
like the proud look on my son's face the first time he hooked a fish, or keeping him up late so he could see all the stars that we never see back in the city. But if I could forget one thing about the cottage, it would be the swarms of mosquitoes. And that's tough to do when you're covered in itchy reminders of every second you spent in shorts. So to make sure my family and I remember the good stuff, we never forget to use off gentle insect repellent. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours and the deep free formula isn't oily, greasy or sticky. So now I can remember the good stuff and forget the mosquitoes. In 2022, we're marking the 35th anniversary of Cottage Life. To celebrate our birthday, we're indulging a little bit, and we've asked a few of our fans to share what they love about the magazine and about being at the lake. Thanks to cottager Andy Lamovsek for sending us this lovely message. The best thing that I've learned from Cottage Life over the years is to embrace it all. I've learned great maintenance tips for each season, and I really like the puttering projects. It's one of my favorite things to do that are available so that everyone can try them, even if you're not very handy. The recipes are good for quick and hearty meals, and my wife and I really appreciate the local dining and bakery recommendations. But above all, when I'm at the cottage, I really appreciate and feel blessed with the beauty that surrounds us. Beauty and blessings indeed, Andy. Thanks for those kind words. That's it for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're also supporting this podcast. So, podcast listeners get a special deal on a subscription. Sign up today and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of our amazing Cottage Spaces booklet, which features our favorite cottages from 35 years of publishing. All of this for just $24.95. Use this code at checkout to get the savings. Cottagelife.com slash pod offer. And while I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast so that each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. <laughs>